Hi everyone, Rob here. I just wanted to jump in real quick and tell you a little bit about the episode you're going to listen to because the episode discussion about the movie Hidden Figures is topical and it's timely and it is completely accidental. John and I recorded this episode in December of 2019. It was edited, uh, completed, and scheduled to be released on this date, June 4th, in March of this year. There was no way I could have foreseen the murder of George Floyd taking place at this time. There's no way I could have seen the discussion and the demonstrations and the reckoning that our country is going through right now. So while this episode is topical and timely, I just want to make sure you know it came across entirely by happenstance. But I'm glad it did, because one of the messages I wanted to get out with this episode, when it was recorded in December, and uh, as I listened to it and listened to the awkwardness of John and myself having the discussions we had, is that we need to be having more of a conversation in this country. And I'm very happy to see that people from all walks of life, all colors, creeds, are jumping in to be allies with our black brothers and sisters in order to call for a change. A change in the disproportionate number of black people who die at the hands of law enforcement, a change in the inequalities that happen uh, between the races in our country, the inequalities which have always been present in our country. And I think we're only at the beginning of the conversation. But I think, I feel, I feel this one's different. And it's because I see more allies out there. I see more people saying Black Lives Matter. I see more people who are there to help each other within the protests. But I think another measure of the, of the effectiveness that we're all going to have this time around is the resistance we are experiencing. The, the people who are coming in to peaceful demonstrations to encourage violence, to encourage looting, and to undermine the message of those who are protesting peacefully. We're smarter than that. We got this. We're going to get the message out. We're going to get change done. So I just want to say to all of you out there, and, and even you, some of you in other countries, I know Germany downloads episodes. I've seen demonstrations in Germany. I've seen other countries in Europe that have been supporting the efforts. So thank you to all of you around the world as well for the, uh, for the work you're doing. But I just want to say to everyone out there, be healthy, be safe, care for each other, love each other, presume goodwill, and don't let the bastards get you down. We got this. 
I'll jump off my soapbox now and get you over to the episode you're here to listen to. Take care, everyone. Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, the podcast where we provide the true story behind movies based on a true story. Before we get started, I want to make a mention of an update that was made to our website. I found some new audio footage regarding a past episode we did about the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. In that episode, John and I talked about Queen playing Sun City in 1984 and how it was received by the public. At the time of the discussion, we were missing Roger Taylor and Brian May's views on playing those Sun City gigs. This new audio is an interview where they can't quite bring themselves to say they were wrong to play those gigs, but they also can't bring themselves to say they were right either. It is an appalling 10 minutes of audio and really helps to bring to light what John Helix and I discussed on that first episode and why Taylor and May threw Freddie Mercury under the bus in telling the story of Queen in the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. You can find this audio at Biopics Mostly Suck slash Bohemian Rhapsody. Now I'd like to move on and give a shout out to another area of the world that is listening to the show. And that location is Perea, Colombia. It is a city of 271 square miles or 702 kilometers squared. And it has a population of 467,000 people. It sits in the foothills of the Andes Mountains in the center of the coffee axis, which is made up of the cities of Medellin, Bogota, and Cali. Perea has a growing number of expats who are retiring there for the average daily temperature of 70 degrees and the fair weather. Thank you to all of you in Perea, Colombia, who are listening to the program out there. I hope you enjoy it, and please feel free to contact us at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash contact. Today, we're going to talk about the movie Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures is about three women who worked as human computers at NASA's Langley campus, and it stars Octavia Spencer, Taraji P. Henson, and Janelle Monet. The film also stars Marishala Ali, Jim Parsons, and Kevin Costner. Hidden Figures gets a 7.8 out of a 10 rating from the Internet Movie Database, a 93% rating from Rotten Tomatoes, and a 74% rating from Metacritic. Hidden Figures was nominated and won a slew of awards, but I think my favorite award that it won was for Best Hero from the 2017 MTV Movie Awards, and that award went to Taraji P. Henson. My guest for today's episode is my frequent collaborator, John Helix. He's a local musician in the San Diego area. You can find him on Facebook and Twitter at John Helix Official, and it's good to have him back again. A quick note regarding the discussion John and I had about the movie Hidden Figures. In the course of the discussion about how the movie celebrates these amazing women, we wound up talking about elements that come into play. Uh, this movie uh, does present elements of Jim Crow era South and what African Americans had to deal with during that time. But the movie also portrays what is the white savior trope, uh, which is commonly seen in films involving race. The discussion about the white savior trope 
led us into a discussion about white privilege, and John and I were awkward in our discussion on these topics. We got wrapped around the axle a bit. In my mind, because I think we do not have enough of an opportunity in our country to talk with each other and understand our various experiences in the country that we call America. The fact is, what is America for me may not be America for people of another race or even of another religion. And I think we should have that conversation more. I think we should become more comfortable with having that conversation. Because the fact is, there are people out there who take advantage of our lack of familiarity with each other's experiences. And when we do not understand what other people experience in our country, when we don't understand that there are people who have to deal with things that we just simply don't have to deal with, it makes it much easier for those powers that be to demonize a group of people and to pit us against each other for their own benefit. And I'm releasing this episode now in all of the awkwardness that takes place during it, in in the hopes that in some small way it can help us to realize that we don't talk about these differences enough. And that maybe we should. Maybe we should understand more about each other. Because what we're seeing in recent events across the world is none of us are getting by by ourselves. There's a phrase being thrown around right now, which is, we're all in it together. And the fact is, we are. We all impact each other, and we need to have a greater understanding of each other and those impacts that we have. So with that in mind, we are definitely going to celebrate who are some incredible women who are portrayed in Hidden Figures. We're also going to talk about the realities of NASA at the time. And even though this episode may go deep, we are still going to look at how Hidden Figures is as a movie and how it is as a medium to document the history of these amazing women who crunch numbers to put men into space. There will be spoilers in the discussion. We will rate the movie as entertainment and as fact and give a score at the end of the episode. If you're ready, let's get started. If not, just hit pause. We'll still be here. technology and hey here we go we're actually breaking in the new room break it in break it in let's see how it goes let's see how it goes so let's see where to start where to start on hidden figures uh we just watched the movie yes something we hadn't done before we just literally watched it and came in to record yeah before the movie came out was this an area of american history that you knew anything about no only tangentially nothing nothing direct uh, I had no idea yeah. that there were women who were called computers, which seems a pretty impersonal title to give a person. You you would think analyst or, or or mathematician or... Is there a problem, Postal Employee 7? <laughs> <laughs> but that was the title they had, computer. But the woman we're talking about 
really did amazing things in their lives. And we're going to talk about a little bit of that today. But let's go ahead and start as we usually start, and we'll talk about the plot of the film. We'll talk about the film and grade it as a piece of entertainment. And then we'll also talk about the true story behind this movie based on a true story. And we will find out what the facts are. (laughs) But let's go ahead and talk about the plot of the movie, because what we're talking about here in Hidden Figures... The year is 1961, and Catherine Goebel carpools to work at NASA in Langley, Virginia every day with Mary Jackson and Dorothy Vaughn. Should be noted, this is Jim Crow era, Virginia, at this time. Civil Rights Act has yet to be enacted. That won't happen until 1964. The space race between the United States and the Soviet Union is officially on, and the movie takes us through Russia's successful launch of Sputnik and the Soviet launch of Yuri Gagarin, the first man to orbit the Earth. Mary is assigned to the heat shield team and finds a design flaw. She would like to become an engineer, but is not able to attend the advanced night classes at the local white high school due to segregation. Dorothy is leading the 30 black female computers, as they were called, but is not provided with a title or pay for her responsibilities. And Catherine is assigned to Al Harrison's space task group due to her skills in analytic geometry. The movie follows the women as they balance their home life and their work. At work, they suffer a variety of indignities in racist and prejudiced Jim Crow era Virginia. Disdain from co-workers, separate bathrooms, separate coffee pots, all while doing the same work as the men in the teams they are assigned to, but without the recognition, the pay, or the respect. Jim Parsons from Big Bang Theory plays a prejudiced co-worker who is constantly demeaning Catherine. Kirsten Dunst plays a supervisor who is also prejudiced, though does not seem to believe she is. And Kevin Costner plays the NASA director who is trying to get the job done, which causes him to be the person to put the kibosh on the prejudice and segregation at NASA. At the end of the movie, racism is vanquished in NASA. Colored bathroom sign comes down. And even some of the prejudiced co-workers seem to turn a corner and give respect to these women in the end. Is that when we became a post-racial society? Is it, was, it, the, is it that moment? I, I think it was then. I think also after Obama was elected. Oh, that's right. That's okay. when racism yeah. was officially cured in the United States. I forgot. I forgot. Uh, it was rooted out. was rooted out to no longer <laughs> appear at all in our politics. Or, Thank you, NASA. Or and around the dinner table. <laughs> and yes, racism is a thing that our children will only hear of. And yeah, not they'll experience. laugh and laugh and laugh. At how silly. How could we be so stupid? If only it were true. But it is not. So it was a movie, Hidden Figures. What did you think, John? I loved it. I loved it. I loved the title. I think it was really nice. It has a double meaning, doesn't it? I, just, I mean, hidden figures is as in figures of in numbers, figures mm-hmm. in characters, figures who act. I thought it was it's really richly layered. I I loved it as a film. I loved John Glenn, honestly. <laughs> you were a huge fan of John Glenn. You know, I mean, the okay, the film itself is it was fabulous. I thought the performances were fabulous as a piece of entertainment. But man, that corn-fed Iowan big smiling uh-huh. hunk of spunk walking through how you ladies doing i mean come on man got it anyway yeah oh so, no he, uh, he was great he, he was, was great. great minor character in the film yeah. 
and I love all three of the actresses. Yeah. I love Taraji P. Henson. Yeah. I love Octavia Spencer. Yeah. I, I love Janelle Monet. I like her music too. Have you ever listened? No. Oh, her mu- We'll put some on after okay. we do the episode. She's fantastic. Yeah. She is really, you know, I, th- I thought her personality as a person came through well in Mary. Because Janelle Monet is a force to be reckoned with. All right. She's got a big personality. and that Music w- reflects that. Exactly. Exactly. Very much so. So big fan of all three of the women. Kevin Costner, we were talking during, while we watched the movie. Fabulous performance. It's a, what, when was Waterworld again? Oh, that was 90s sometime. But That's my last kind of benchmark for Kevin Costner. That's that's uh, he dropped off the face of the planet for me after that. But didn't he direct that too? Because I have, I have a... no idea. I just remember just being eternally bored throughout that entire yeah. movie. Because I have a theory that Kevin Costner is best in movies he doesn't direct. Yeah. Well, what has he not directed that he's been just fabulous in? I'm Bull Durham. To... Oh yeah, Bull Durham. Bull Durham. Yeah, Bull Durham. Awesome. yeah. Yeah. A swing vote. Yeah. Oh, I haven't seen that. Swing vote was a good one. But yeah, no, I, I enjoy Kevin Costner. When what are you staring at? I'm thinking of Kevin Costner movies. I'm just he's, I'm just drawing a huge blank on Kevin Costner. I am. I mean, because the ones he directed are easy. The Postman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, Dances with Wolves. Yeah, yeah. Waterworld. I think we're gonna have to check that one out. Yeah. But yeah, no. I mean, yeah. I, Hidden Figures. He was great. He was but fabulous. you know, here's the thing, and I wonder this about his character mm-hmm. because. He didn't come from a prejudiced type of perspective at all, but he was also a man who had a job to get done. Mm-hmm. So the question is, mm-hmm. were his, you know, what were his personal feelings? Did we ever find out what his personal feelings were? Because everything seemed to just be geared towards getting the job done. If that means that uh, Catherine has a bathroom that's closer then that doesn't have anything necessarily to do with doing the right thing as far as race relations go. It just has to do with getting the job done. Yeah. I felt like the movie created a sense of the injustice and that he Mm -hmm. was correcting that injustice in whatever form he could while getting the job done. I I don't know. The handshake at the end, the the wistful music coming in and wrapping up everything nice and needed. They they seem to be pretty close at the end or at the very least he seemed to respect her at the end but again the question is did he respect her for the job he did or or she did or exactly and it's a good question but yeah so in other words there may not have been nobility behind what he did it may have just been it's what required what's required in order to get the job done but, Which makes him a, a much more complex character. It does. It mm-hmm. does. Because I thought he was fascinating. Yeah, me too. He was really great in that movie. So, on a scale of one to five, what would you give the film? Oh, I would say solid 3.5. 3.5? Yeah. I'd go 3.5 as well. Okay. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it hit all the right notes. Yeah. That the things you wanted to see happen in regards to the storyline happened and... All the actors were great in it. Marshala Ali. We can't forget Marshala mm-hmm. Ali. I I love him in those types of roles where he's quiet and kind of understated. Yeah. And I thought he was really dignified, especially in the scene where he's proposing. Yeah. I was, he's such a great actor. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was great. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. was a good scene. It was a good scene. So solid 3.5 from both of us for the yeah, movie. For the movie, solid 3.5. Yeah. yeah. It was very enjoyable really and that enjoyable. brought forward a piece of American history that I don't think was really out there before the book also titled Hidden Figures. When was the book? Uh, I want to say just a few years before the movie. Mm. It seems like it was relatively recent. But let's go ahead and take a look at the facts of the film itself. In this portion of the podcast, we will talk about how facts were presented in the film and the historical and factual accuracy of each item. We will rank each one between one and five for truthfulness, and we will rate the movie based on the average of the accuracy of the historical elements. I think for our conversation, we should probably dispense with Jim Parsons' character, Kirsten Dunst's character, and also Kevin Costner's, because they are not based on people in reality, but they're rather a collection of just behaviors. Being so there is no quote. There is no. There was no Harrison. Oh, okay. No, I okay. think there were a few different directors over that time period, and I think the movie wanted to focus on one gentleman in particular, but they weren't able to get the rights to tell his story. Ah, so they pulled an Oliver Stone, huh? <laughs> uh, and when you say that, you mean Patricia Keneally. Ah, uh, the, the composite. The composite character. But you're saying yeah. it's behaviors, not an actual, it's not based on any one single person. Exactly. Yeah. So Jim Parsons' character, Kirsten Dunst's character, all of them are composite characters to get across. To represent stereotypes. Stereotypes, Jim Crow era yeah, okay. type of sentiments towards African Americans and uh, also the leadership over at NASA. Uh, so since we don't have any direct comparisons for those characters, we'll dispense with them. I think what would be really important is to go ahead and focus on the three women who are central to hidden figures, talk about how they're presented in the movie, what they went through, and also to talk about them in real life. But before we can do that, I think what we need to do is we need to talk about the environment they worked in. Because NASA was not always NASA. NASA was originally called the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. And this is an organization that existed in the 30s, 40s, and 50s and didn't become NASA until 1961. In the movie, NASA is shown as a highly segregated work environment. The computers, who are the African-American women, spend their lunches in a colored lunchroom and have to use a colored restroom. Male colleagues are shown as dismissive and harassing, showing equal amounts of misogyny and prejudice. Well, what really happened? What really happened was NACA was founded in 1915 with the mission to undertake, promote, and institutionalize aeronautical research. The agency was dissolved in 1958 when NASA acquired all of its assets. From the beginning, NASA was a desegregated agency. Which means everything we see in Hidden Figures regarding any separation of bathrooms or lunchrooms is automatically false. Because it's all taking place at NASA. However, there was still prejudice. According to Katherine Johnson, who's one of the women who are featured, played by Tarachi B. Henson, uh, she said she didn't feel a segregation at NASA. Her quote is, because everybody there was doing research. You had a mission, and you worked on it, and it was important to do your job. She added, I didn't feel any segregation. I knew it was there, but I didn't feel it. In the movie, she's shown having to deal with separate coffee pots, mm -hmm. colored restrooms, 
uh, derision from male counterparts, in particular Jim Parsons' mm-hmm. uh, character. But she says in real life, she just it wasn't on her radar as she worked there. She knew it was there, but she didn't experience it because everyone was there with a goal in mind. Doesn't that mirror Kevin Costner's character in our discussion? That I think so. Yes. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's a, that's so a really interesting point. Which I, and I'm glad you brought that up. So it seems that Kevin Costner's approach as that character in the movie seems to be more of what the environment was rather than an environment that his character as Harrison had to fight against. Yeah. So his approach was the standard as opposed to being the outlier and having to correct people on their prejudice. Did they have input? Did did, did she have any, was there any input on the, on the screenplay or, any that Catherine Johnson yeah, had? Yeah. Uh, she was well into her 90s. I oh. think she was 97 at okay. the time the movie was made. Definitely she was interviewed for the book okay. because she's a subject in it. But I don't know what type of input she had into the movie or the screenplay at all. So let's go ahead and we're going to talk about these ladies one by one because I think each of them are fascinating and what they accomplished in real life. And we'll talk about how they're portrayed in the movie first dorothy vaughn she is shown as the unrewarded unofficial supervisor of the women who work as the computers she also drives the car for the carpool that brings her mary and Catherine to work at nasa the path to upward mobility is not available to her until she starts to learn and understand the new ibm supercomputer that is being installed which in the movie she takes on herself she's not assigned to do it at all She just goes ahead and takes the opportunity. And this computer threatens to replace the human computers. And she takes it on herself to learn the computer language Fortran. And finally, becomes a supervisor at NASA in 1961. What really happened? Uh, Well, first off, Dorothy, Mary, and Catherine did not carpool together. Oh. I know. I know. That blows the whole mechanic plot. Uh, But much of... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The way she fixed it with the screwdriver. Uh, But much of what was presented about Dorothy is correct. But her achievements were much greater than the movie shows. Mm. In fact, she became a supervisor in 1949. Give me a break. At NACA, again, National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. And was the first African-American supervisor not to mention one of very few women supervisors at the time. Wow. So let's let's think about this. The movie presents them as achieving these things right. in 1961. And that's three years before the civil rights, seven years, eight years after Bo- Brown versus Board of Education. Yes. Just re- that's, and you said 49 was when she... 1949 yeah. is when she achieved the supervisor role that she's shown achieving in the movie. Which, to me, is an even greater achievement than doing it in 1961. Yeah. It, no, no, I absolutely agree. However, I would say that I think the period of 19... I don't know. There seems to be period, There seem to be periods that 
work better iconically than others. I mean, 1949 isn't exactly an iconic year for the United States. Right? And, and I guess for from a storytelling perspective, it yeah. makes sense to compress everything in one agency so you don't have to explain NACA versus NASA. Yeah. So you go ahead and you make NASA segregated, and then you can cover all of that. And set it in the context of 60, the inception of the civil, civil rights struggle in the 60s. Then you have the overriding mission of the space race taking place as well. In the early 1960s, Dorothy really did teach herself and her staff Fortran and later headed the programming section of the Analysis and Computation Division at Langley. Did she steal the library book? I did not find any information on that. That was one of my favorite parts. You know why? Because she did pay her taxes, and I it's pay ta- not stealing. I pay, pa- I, I pay taxes, son. <laughs> that was great. That was great. And she passed away at the age of 98 in November of 2008. Mm-hmm. So 1949, it, just, it really just blows my mind that she achieved it at that point in time. Yeah. Well, that's the th- I mean, there's no—not only is there no— Social support, but there's no mechanism in place, it seems, yeah. bureaucratically or legally for her to accomplish such a thing. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, the, yeah. you have to come overcome. Yeah. Not to mention there wasn't a movement taking place necessarily. You didn't have Rosa Parks. Right. Happened I mean, by that point in time. So there wasn't a groundswell taking place. Yeah. So it, I think it just speaks so much to her as a person and to her skills in order to do the job that she would achieve the supervisor role in 49, given where the country's perception was on African-Americans at the time. So, um, so yeah, greater achievement than what's shown in the film. Alas. Let's talk about Mary Jackson. Okay. Uh, For Mary Jackson, she's presented in the movie that she yearns to be a NASA engineer and goes to court in order to attend night classes uh, at the white high school. What really happened is the movie embellished this just a little bit. She did have to ask the city of Hampton for an exemption, and it was granted. That was it. There, oh, okay. There, there was no court case. There was no plea. There, there was, was no there, white okay. judge involved at all. <laughs> she went to the city, said, I need an exception to do this. They said, okay. And following the completion of her classes, she was promoted to engineer in 1958. Okay. Ahead of the 1961 shown in the movie. Okay. In 1985, after working for 34 years as an engineer, she held the senior most engineering title and realized that she could not earn further promotions without becoming a supervisor. She took a demotion to become a manager of both the Federal Women's Program and the NASA Office of Equal Opportunity Programs and the Affirmative Action Program. She worked to influence the hiring and promotion of women in NASA science, engineering, and mathematics careers. But how amazing is that? Not, yeah. not only did she lead the way, she also took a role that allowed her to have direct influence on the hiring of women at NASA. Yeah. Incredible. And she passed away in 2005 at the age of 83. But this is why I said I think the accomplishments of these women is much greater than the movie was able to tell. Yeah. Let's talk about Katherine Johnson okay. and her accomplishments. Yeah. And then we'll talk a little deeper into the film and how it portrayed certain aspects of challenges that the women had. So Katherine Johnson is shown in the movie as a widow of three young daughters that she has to raise. At work, she has to trek a half mile to the closest female restroom for black women. 
and she is allowed to attend meetings after she makes a case for it in the middle of the hallway. Katherine Johnson did not carpool with Mary and Dorothy. We talked about that. She did carpool with Eunice Smith, who was a nine-year West End computer veteran and a friend and neighbor. Uh, Her three children were teenagers at the time she married Jim Johnson. And Catherine was assigned to the Flight Research Division in 1953. She moved to the Space Task Group in 1958 when engineers from the Flight Research Division formed the core of that group. In 1960, she co-authored a research report and became the first woman to receive credit on such a report. So it didn't have to do with computers don't receive the credit. Women. Women in general were not receiving credit on reports. Catherine began attending meetings in 1958, not due to the importance of the meeting, which is what's shown in the film. It's so important that we figure out the trajectory that she has to be there. She got in there because of her own persistence. Hmm. And she said, I I need to, to be there because of the job I do not just because of what was being discussed. Katherine Johnson never used the colored women's restroom. In real life, she never had to run a Mm -hmm. a quarter mile. In reality, Mary Jackson did. Okay, (laughs) It was Mary Jackson who had to do that. But this is interesting. What Katherine Johnson did is she just simply used the restroom that was closest to her office because the white restrooms were not labeled for color. They were labeled men and women, But the colored restrooms were labeled colored women's restroom, colored men's restroom. She just went in. And when someone did raise a complaint, she ignored it and continued to use the same bathroom. And nothing was ever said again. So the the crowbar scene is not... uh... Crowbar scene did not happen. And he didn't say we we all pee the same color. We all pee the same color. (laughs) Classic. No, no, he he did not. Which is, you know, technically not true. I mean, it depends on what you've had to drink that day, right? Yeah, let's not go there. Okay, let's not go there. I'm just saying, you could have come up with a better line. Katherine Johnson was 97 when the movie was filmed, and she is still with us as we record this at the age of 101. She is only one of the ladies represented who are still with us. In 2015, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Barack Obama, and the following year, NASA dedicated the Langley Research Center's Katherine G. Johnson Computational Building in her honor. Incredibly accomplished woman. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's remarkable. So let's talk a little bit about what the movie does present in regards to how roadblocks were removed for these women. Mm-hmm. Because there's... There, There is a, a tendency in some movies to have what's referred to as the white savior complex. Yeah, of course. Which is by the grace of a white man, mm-hmm. people of color are allowed to move forward and do something. Such as Harrison smashing the colored lady's room sign and Harrison also letting her go into mission control to witness the launch. Mm-hmm. Which didn't happen largely because there wasn't a mission control at Langley. <laughs> But there has been some criticism of how the movie has approached these items. The screenwriter, Theodore Melfi, said he saw no problem with adding scenes because he says there needs to be white people who do the right thing. And there needs to be black people who do the right thing. And someone does the right thing. And so who cares who does the right thing 
as long as the right thing is achieved. We seem to be just circling back to this central theme is get the job done and done and do what's right. There was some criticism that came from Dexter Thomas of Vice News. Uh, he criticized the additions, the fictional additions, the liberties into this film as creating a white savior trope. Uh, Dexter Thomas said, in this case, it means that a white person doesn't have to think about the possibility that were they around back in the 1960s South, they might have been one of the bad ones. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, if, I mean, if that, yeah, I, I can see it with, the, but I, I also can see plenty of hostility and racism and mm -hmm. characters that if you're paying any attention at all, you could see yourself as if you were in the, yeah, in the South at that uh, in 1961. The Atlantic's Megan Garber said that the film's narrative trajectory involved thematic elements of the white savior. The screenwriter Melfi said he found hurtful the accusations of a white savior storyline, saying, it was very upsetting to me because I'm at a place where I've lived my life colorless and I grew up in Brooklyn. I walked to school with people of all shapes, sizes, and colors, and that's how I've lived my life. So it's very upsetting that we still have to have this conversation. I get upset when I hear black film, and so does Taraji P. Hansen. It's just a film. And if we keep labeling something as a black film or a white film, basically it's modern day segregation. We're all humans. Any human can tell any human story. I don't want to have this conversation about black film or white film anymore. I want to have conversations about film. Okay. There are a lot of, of assumptions baked into that. Mm -hmm. I mean, this goes back to our post-racial discussion. We don't want to talk about black films or white films. We just want to talk about film. That's yeah, kind of an I don't see color. Uh, which kind is, of is, is a line that it's maybe your attitude is that you don't see color. Yeah. But that, that's a ridiculous statement. What was it Stephen Colbert used to say? Something along the exactly, lines of exactly. I, I, don't see, I, I, don't see I don't see color, but people tell me I'm white because I like the Eagles, <laughs> yeah. right? Or something like that. <laughs> I mean, I get the sentiment of it, uh -huh. but that is, uh, it is just, it's a profoundly ignorant thing to say or a profoundly misleading thing to say. Of course you see color or pigmentation. It's your attitude toward it. Yeah. And my feeling on it was with the accomplishments these women had that we talked about in the decades in which they had it outside of 1961, how much do you take away from them as you try to honor them when you take the Jim Crow aspects and make those challenges that they have to overcome. Because in real life, it's not enough that she was an engineer in 58 or she was right. a supervisor in 49 in Virginia of all places. Yes, they had to deal with these things. And I think what would have been even more fascinating is if you are an African-American woman and a supervisor at uh, National Aeronautical Administration in 1949 into the 1950s. And then once you walk out those doors, you're considered less than. Yeah. How is it to deal with that disparity? Yeah, like, you, yeah. you have a job where you supervise people. And then outside of that job and in public... You have people treating you, as we saw alluded to in the film, when uh, when Dorothy Vaughn and her sons went to the library. Yep. What is it like to deal with that every day? And I, I also, 
I really, as much as I enjoy this film and I enjoy taking a look at the accomplishments of these women, I also approached this discussion with some hesitancy because part of me wonders as we're talking about color and neither of us are approaching it from we don't see color. No, we definitely see color. We have respect for races and creeds and nationalities and what they bring to the table and what they contribute to our society. But at the same time, we're two white guys. Yeah. And so I had some hesitancy with coming to the discussion and having this conversation because I really wonder if we're the right people to have that conversation. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I was going to ask especially about the intended audience for this film. And I wonder what the reception is like from the black community. Mm. That, I mean, that would be, that would be my, that would be my question because for me, this, this is a film for white people. Uh, interesting. Uh, there's, there's one other comment I have here regarding the approach of the film, because the Huffington Post's Zeba Blay said of screenwriter Melfi's frustration, quote, his frustration is also a perfect example of how, when it comes to open dialogue about depictions of people of color on screen, it behooves white people, especially those who position themselves as allies, to listen. The inclusion of the bathroom scene doesn't make Melfi a bad filmmaker or a bad person or a racist, but his suggestion that a feel-good scene like that was needed for the marketability and overall appeal of the film speaks to the fact that a Hollywood at large still has a long way to go in telling black stories, no matter how many strides you have made. Which, in a little bit, is what I was saying yeah. as well. I think she said it much more eloquently than I could, but... Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think that, yes, but in the context of a quote-unquote black movie, that's true. I think, I mean, I think Hollywood has a long way to go in telling any any story in that context. Yeah, but it just seems that if you're going to present a story of an African-American person in America in the 1960s, racist attitudes were not the only challenge they had in their life. Yeah. They're still living a life. Yeah. And yes, they were out there, but were they as overt as hidden figures depicts? Katherine Johnson says, no. She was aware there was segregation out there, but it wasn't taking place. She wasn't affected by it. So that's why I wonder, because a lot of this comes, and in this instance, I think the director uh, is not a person of color, not so sure about the screenwriter. But these white savior elements are brought in as something to overcome. And I have a theory about this. My theory is it's not it's not done with ill intention. I think in a way there is a Caucasian fantasy that takes place in a way, a well-intentioned fantasy, which is this is shit I know I'm not going to have to deal with mm-hmm. because I'm a white person in America there's certain privileges that I have that I'm not going to have to deal with this at large. But on the other hand, I'm a person who feels a need to do something about it. In other words, I think there's a lot of white people who, at least on some level, want to be in the fight, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But because these are things that aren't going to happen to them personally, they're not going to be in that fight. They're going to be in that fight as an ally. Right. 
they may be in that fight tangentially. The periphery or something. They yeah. may go to a march and they may they may express themselves there, but they they aren't going to be shopping and have someone watching them for shoplifting. Yeah, they can't on be, an average day. Yeah, and they can't be in the fight. You know, they they aren't going to be pulled over for being black by a cop. They they just we don't have to deal with that those types of things. But I, I think to a certain extent they want to feel like they're effective in changing it. And I think on some level the white savior trope is in a way a white fantasy of, oh, there we go, we're doing something. Yeah, I mean the the white savior trope is really interesting, especially coming out of uh like to kill a mockingbird. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I don't know. I, I think it's just really, I think it's in fashion right now. It's very much in fashion. Well, hasn't it always been? I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird was... No, I mean, what I mean is as a, as a point of discussion. I don't mean as a, as a, mm-hmm. as, as a common theme. And I, what I'm saying is as a, as a talking point. The, the, the Atticus Finch thing is really coming back with full force. And I, I understand the arguments for it. For me, though, I, I think we're painting white people with a broad brush. I mm. I don't think that white people are aware of their own level of privilege. I mean, I'm not saying everyone, but mm. I just I don't think you can say that, you know, I think it's a certain type of white person that wants to be in the fight or be on the periphery mm. or take some action, but I, I I would I would argue that majority or a, a good percentage don't even know the what what privilege is and what it means to what it means not to have to go through life worrying about, you know, or to have to go through life getting pulled over by the cops because of your skin yeah. color, or you know, being watched excessively at a store, or being immediately suspect, or being you know, getting twenty to life for pot, or whatever it yeah. might be. You know, so I mean, for me, it's a it's it's a certain type of white person. It's not just it's those who are aware of this stuff, and I would say, especially in this day and age. They're few and far between. Yeah, and, and that awareness has to be brought to your attention. And, and you have to, as as the quote I just read said from um, from Zeb Blay at the Huffington Post, people who are allies need to listen. But, but again, I think it goes to this point. And I, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot just with uh, the levels of inequality in the country and treatment of particular ethnicities and races and nationalities Mm -hmm. and the more i think about it i don't i think you can be as an outsider Mm -hmm. you can be related to the fight but i i I just i don't think a movie i don't think a book i don't think a story can do anything in terms of a substitute for lived experience to me this stuff is like you're going back to the conversation of two white dudes talking about this film. I don't really think we have an entry point for it as on, as human beings. I think we have, you know, abstractions as, as entry points and historical anecdotes and historical timelines. But I don't think you and I, in terms of lived experience, have any entry point to this. No, I think, I think we, we sympathize and we empathize. I don't think we can empathize. Why? I can't. I can't put myself. I have never been in that position. Mm. I have never been in a position remotely that uh, discriminatory. 
Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. So uh, that's so to me that's the that's the, the the issue with talking about it is, I it's interesting to talk about it as a film, but in yeah. terms of a human experience, there's just no way. There's no there's no way I could even make it make any salient point that I think would be even it would be disrespectful. I think, and, and I would disagree that movies or television or media can't have an impact because I think there's been uh, a huge shift that has taken place. And I see this when I see television commercials in uh, in that there's a greater degree of diversity in people who are being presented because it used to be the default yeah. was it was a white person presenting the product. Yeah. And, um, you know, there, there's a there, there's a commercial for a coffee pot and it's an Asian woman and she does a coffee pot and she walks through the office and she high fives a. Uh, an Asian coworker and a black coworker and a white coworker, and she's sipping coffee with her boss, who is African American, mm-hmm. and uh, and it just it. I think number one, it's great to see, but I think those presentations really broaden people's scope as well. Oh, I be- I, be- is, I agree with you. You know, I don't think that they can create empathy though. Uh, in a mm-hmm. in a real sense. Hmm. No, but they can create a, a familiarity. Yeah, absolutely. Which, which can lead to empathy, mm, Be, because because people in people are unless they're presented as full fledged people as liking the same things you like. For instance, right. in this instance, coffee. Yeah, it's like, oh, well, yeah, Asian women like coffee. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's you know, unless people are presented as rounded and and i'm not saying one commercial about coffee can do that i'm saying you know it's a commercial about coffee here it's a toothpaste commercial it's how they're presented in a television show Mm -hmm. as more than just a asian stereotype oh yeah it's a black stereotype or a gay stereotype the more we are able to see uh especially if we don't have it available to us within our own lives but through media we can see oh yeah Asian people do this too, or Korean people do this too, and I do that. And mm-hmm. it, it's if you're in your bubble, that can at least help to expand and break you out of it in some way, which I do think leads to empathy. Yeah, I, I, I agree that it expands your understanding and maybe your awareness of the demographics of the country. Um, I just... I I don't think that overcoming employment obstacles, being sprayed with a fire hose, being beaten, being sitting at the back, I I don't think that any work of art can recreate what that feels like. That I agree with. So, because to, to yeah. me, that's that's empathy is when yeah. you when you've gone through the thing that the person's gone through. Otherwise, it's an, it's imaginative empathy. Well, Roger Ebert used to say movies are empathy machines because they do put us in the place of another person and another person's experiences. They aren't our experiences. They are someone else's. But what a film does is it allows us to, it focuses a lens for ourselves on something. It it focuses a point of view that isn't ours. Yeah. And I, again, I agree with that. It's just the, the issue I take with it is the, the notion that any kind of medium can be an exchange for direct experience in terms of empathetic understanding of someone else's life. That, that to me is, is, is really misguided. And I don't think it 
can, but I think it can help to move the needle in the real world. Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So, okay. Two white guys talking about racism. Two there white guys talking about racism. That, that might be a new podcast. That might be. That's, <laughs> we, got, we got nothing but a lot of unawareness for you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> We've got nothing but... <laughs> <laughs> abstractions and <laughs> anecdotes. Thank you for joining us for two guys who are working through their own privilege in American society as they discuss uh, the presentation of people of color. It's a, it's a, it's a heavy burden, this privilege. You know? uh, it's, not... it's yeah. Oh, God. You ever had that conversation with someone? People who don't think that, uh, like, white men who don't, who don't see any, any sense of the privileges they've been afforded. Yeah. That's a fun one, isn't yeah. it? You know, they just don't realize that really it's about the shit you don't have to deal with. Yeah, I know. I mean, is what it comes down to. It's... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no. There, there seems to be a... There seems to be in 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 this discussion of, of white privilege, going back to the film, there's a job to be done. It's got to get done. Mm-hmm. There's such such a I earned it element to the to the argument of there is no <laughs> there is no privilege. I had this all myself. I made this yeah. all myself. I got it all right. Yeah, and no one makes it alone. I mean, yeah, no one does. You know, I I had a cousin of mine who was a huge Trump supporter, and uh, and he lived up on Mount Baldy uh, outside of Los Angeles. And I was talking to him, and he's telling me how no one gave me anything. No one did anything for me. And then 20 minutes later, he's relaying a story about how his parents loaned him money to buy the cabin he lives in. I was like, come on, dude. Yes. yes. It's from your parents. It doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, no one gave me anything. No one gave just me. My parents. Just, just my parents. I started yeah. out with a modest million-dollar loan from my father. Yeah. Yeah, so... Oh, all right. Have we dug ourselves into a hole on this conversation? Way deep. Way, way deep. deep. Way deep. So, uh, so I don't know who has the shovel. I think we both have shovels. I, I don't know. I, I think we kind of dug ourselves in here with this conversation, which yeah. which brings me back to were we the two people who should be talking about this? Honestly, no. No. I mean, should okay, should be in what sense? As a couple white guys who, as we said, we, we know we have white privilege. Yeah. But you you mean, I, I'm just saying in what sense should we be discussing it in terms of, or should we not be discussing it? I think and as an, as an as academic speculation and abstraction, mm-hmm. absolutely. It's fine. It's free game. Yeah. What I mean is, are we the people to talk about white savior trope and the presentation of people of color and presentation of racism in film it depends on what 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 position you want to take what what position you want to look at it from but i would say if you're looking at it from the position of the oppressed then no i'm saying if you're looking at a white savior film from an audience position of someone who is the oppressed and is being quote-unquote saved by the white man Mm mm-hmm then no, we're not the people to be talking about that because we've yeah. we have no reference point for that. And and, and yeah, I mean, I, I really wanted to do this episode, but I also wanted a a person of color. Yeah, 
to be part of it. Yeah. But but I also didn't feel comfortable going, hey, I'm looking for a person of color to be on a discussion about hidden figures. Right. Because in a way, I think that also paints it as it it's not a human story in a way that it, yeah it's a const it, it, then it's a construct in other words yeah. if i do that am i just focusing on the fact they're african-american rather than they're women who made achievements right so i felt it was a double-edged sword on that one yeah this i mean that's this is this is a tough one or i'd be really interested are we just wringing our hands over or over nothing would uh, would an African American person say, "Oh my God, those two guys are just ridiculous"? Probably <laughs> wringing themselves in knots over this. Probably. Probably. Yeah. So, what are we rating this thing? That's a good question. So, on uh, on the facts, what do you think? Because. They did accomplish what they were shown to accomplish in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, the the prejudice that was presented at NASA, um, according to Katherine Johnson, she was aware of, didn't encounter for herself. The colored restroom thing never happened at NASA, but it happened at NACA. So it, it's kind of a mishmash of things taking place here. Yeah. I don't know. I still see it as a. I still see it as primarily a, a white narrative that is making an attempt at inclusion. I don't know. It's it, it it's it's strange. I don't know. I would give it solid one point five maybe on that. In uh, that well, in, A through F for the actor. Oh, A through F. I'm sorry. Get, I'm sorry. Okay. A through F. I forget. Uh, then a good D plus. Good D, D plus. D plus C. on the accuracy. D plus C. I'll be minus. a little more generous. I'll go with C. You go give it an average. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well. uh... Thank you very much for joining me, John. This was, uh, we got a little deep there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how can you not? I know. I mean, this is the, this is the core of, this is the core of, you know, many people's identity. Yeah, that's true. All right. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. Thank you. Now is the time where we fact check ourselves. We come to these conversations prepared, but sometimes we find ourselves going in a direction we weren't prepared for, or we mention some bad information, or, to be honest, we just completely make stuff up. For instance, we mentioned during our discussion that Katherine Johnson was alive and well at the age of 101, and while that was true when we recorded the episode in December, sadly Miss Johnson passed away on February 24th of this year. John asked the question if there was a documentary about the human computers. The answer is that a great number of documentaries and featurettes were released following the movie Hidden Figures, but not many before the film was released. John also asked if Kevin Costner directed the movie Waterworld in our discussion about Kevin Costner and when he is really, really good in a role. But it was another Kevin, Kevin Reynolds, who directed Kevin Costner in Waterworld, He also directed Costner in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And that wraps up another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. If you liked it, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere. 
You can find all of the sources we used to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash episodes. I usually throw some other goodies on the episode pages like videos or pictures, and for hidden figures I found a few things. I found a nice little animated video about Dorothy Vaughn, which talks about the NACA and her achievements there before the NACA became NASA. Another video I found also features Christine Darbin, who was one of the human computers in real life, and the video about her does a great job at setting the tone of the role of women and African Americans in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. I've also included a video from NASA about the real people behind the movie Hidden Figures, and one of the people who takes part in this discussion is the film's director, Ted Melfi. I think you'll find it interesting to watch going to give some great perspective so go check out those videos over at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash hidden figures how are we doing with this project send us your feedback through our website biopicsmostlysuck.com and you can recommend which movies you would like us to use for an episode and we will share the true story behind that movie based on the true story Take care, everyone. Stay healthy. Bye.